The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. And buy Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Try the new Squarespace 7 and get 10% off when you visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, February 4th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There's a big story yesterday and today about ISIL, ISIS's burning of the Jordanian pilot, horrible, and King Abdul of Jordan, a close ally of the U.S., issued swift revenge. He executed prisoners. Um, he, of course, is still working closely with the United States. And I was thinking about the story from last week, actually, it was about 10 days ago, of uh, another King Abdul of Saudi Arabia who died, and now it's King Salman of Saudi Arabia. So listen to all these kings. Not that they're even named Abdullah, but that they're kings. And I started mentally scrolling through the Muslim world or the Arab world. Bahrain has a king. The UAE has a king. An emirate, actually, the United Arab Emirates. And we're friendly. The United States is friendly with all of these kings. We're also friendly with the queens, right? There are queens in places like the UK. There was Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands. Now it's William Alexander, king of the Netherlands. And those queens, they're ceremonial. Most of the European countries have ceremonial kings and queens as sovereigns. But I got curious. And so I looked it up. There are 44 countries that have a sovereign that can be described as a king or a queen. You know, there's an emperor in Japan. Some of these are ceremonial and others like the Middle Eastern ones like Qatar and Bahrain and UAE. Those are real kings who really do run the country. And the United States is on friendly terms. We're allies with every country that is ruled ceremonially or otherwise by a king or queen. Why is that? Now, It is not the case that the United States, if you are a dictator, the United States will oppose you. There are plenty of dictators. The United States counts as allies, Equatorial Guinea, Burkina Faso. But most, if not all, of the United States' enemies are dictators or autocrats. Maybe not Venezuela. Some chicanery in the Venezuela election. Not the best election you'd hope for. Probably legitimately popularly elected. But why are we riding with the kings? I have a theory. Stability. The ceremonial ones, who cares? That's fine. But the other kings, unlike other autocrats, they didn't come to power in a coup, at least not recently, at least not for a few generations. So they're less revolutionary, less bloodthirsty, let's say. They're just more stable. They're less given to lurching around. To run a kingdom, even a a country, even one that you inherit, it takes a lot of skills. It takes a lot of polish. Game of Thrones taught us that. So from a selfish U.S. perspective, especially in a volatile area like the Middle East, a king or queen, but a king, will probably be the U.S.'s ally, but an autocrat might not. And therefore, when it comes to the U.S., all hail the king. As an institution, the U.S. was founded in opposition to kings, but we continue to endorse in word, action, and deed the kings of the world. Now, let's talk about not backing down, or as Sam Smith calls it, staying with me. Both these sentiments speak of fidelity and backbone. Both also have a similar chord structure, it turns out. And in the spiel, I explain why the supposedly rich just means richer than you. But first, a DNA decision from England offers a confusing definition of parenthood. I am here to undo that confusion.
The headline from the BBC, and this reflects many other publications and outlets, MPs, meaning members of parliament, say yes to three-person babies. MPs have voted in favor, with a U, of the creation of babies with DNA from two women and one man in a historic move. Now, I am confused. I didn't know babies can be made that way. And upon further inquiry, I found out that it has to do with DNA as it's usually mentioned and something called mitochondrial DNA. I have more questions than I can offer, so I'm going to turn to Virginia Hughes, science editor for BuzzFeed News. Hello, Virginia. Hi, Mike. I think this is going to be one of those segments on the show where essentially I admit total ignorance and say, talk to me as if I were an intelligent ninth grader. But I'll start with this. (laughs) Mitochondrial DNA, one of the quote-unquote parents is donating mitochondrial DNA. Is that what we would call genetic, genetic code? Yeah, so if you go back to ninth grade, which is, I think, when I first learned about mitochondria, you'll remember, like, the cell, you learned all the different parts of the cell, and there's a nucleus, and inside the nucleus is where our DNA strand is, the double helix that everybody kind of knows about. But then outside the nucleus in the cell, floating around, are these things called mitochondria, and... uh, Depending on what type of cell it is, you could have lots and lots and lots of mitochondria or just some cells like red blood cells don't have any mitochondria. Mm -hmm. And mitochondria are power plants, so they give the cell energy. That's all they do. Yeah, I remember that exact phrase. The mitochondria is the power plant of the cell. Like, I remember that now that you said it. <laughs> don't know what it means. Confused in 2015 when the MPs vote for three DNA. But yes, I do remember that. Yeah. So there are these power plants, and, and like in liver cells, there's 2,000 of these power plants in every cell because they need a lot of energy. And inside each mitochondria is a little circle of mitochondrial DNA. And mitochondrial DNA is tiny. It only has 37 genes on it. If you compare to the normal DNA, which has like 25,000 genes on it. So mm-hmm. it's a tiny, tiny bit of our genetic code. And the weird thing about it is it comes through the egg, uh, like, gook. So it comes only from our mothers. It comes from our mother's egg. And so it's this maternally transferred genetic code. And those 37 genes inside the mitochondria, they, all that they're good for, the only thing that they do is help a mitochondria function which turns out to be really important because, like, if your mitochondria aren't working, then you could have heart disease or seizures or muscular dystrophy. Like, the energy that that the cells get is, you know, really important to the cells working. Now, it is scientifically accurate to call it DNA, but is it better to think about it so as not to freak out three parents? What does that mean? How does it affect personality and looks and DNA? Is it a more apt analogy to compare it to an organ. I mean, if there, we do heart transplants, if our heart didn't work, then we wouldn't have a personality. So even though it is mitochondrial and even though it is DNA, does it function more as an organ would? I think that's fair. The only difference, and this might be kind of a big difference, is that if I, if I get a, a heart replacement, somebody else's heart is in my body, and then their DNA that's in their in that heart is in my body. So in that sense, it's a DNA donor. Mm-hmm. But with mitochondria, if I get if I get a mitochondrial donation, if that was part of the way I as a fetus was you know made, 
the mitochondria is going to be in all of my cells pretty much. So it's like, it's an organ donation, but it's an organ donation that affects your whole body, not just like one tissue or another. Now, from an ethical standpoint, uh, some religious groups, the Catholic Church, I think the Anglican Church, have voiced opposition. Some of that is because it involves the destruction of embryos to create this process. They're objecting to this because of how the process is done, not because of what the process is. There are other groups that say this might lead us down the line to design our babies. But, you know, they say that about IVF. Do you think that there are any, hey, no one wants to proceed willy-nilly and not to think about this? Do you think there are any legitimate ethical things to consider or to maybe consider to the point where we shouldn't do this? So actually, we have done this before in the in the late 90s, a clinic in New Jersey. Um, back then, it was called cytoplasmic transfer, and it was used as a way to boost fertility in, in IVF clinics. And I think something like a dozen or 15 babies were born using this procedure in the 90s. So, and, and they're all alive, as far as I know. I think as long as all parties are informed of what's happening, I don't see it as much different than an IVF. And so, and, and the point is, even though this is making international headlines, and I suppose the United Kingdom has officially become the first country to introduce laws that allow this, it has been going on in the United States. This is precedented. What, it, there just wasn't a law be, uh, weighing in on it one way or another in the United States? Yeah, so reproductive technology is like infamously unregulated in the United States. So it's called the Wild West, and there was this clinic, or it might have been a handful of clinics in the 90s, that they had these this spree of births, and then they stopped. So they kind of voluntarily stopped doing it in light of some controversy, Um so this would be the first, and, and to be clear, I think what the what was just approved in England is the use of this technique in a very specific circumstance, which is when the mother has mitochondrial disease and doesn't want to pass it on to her kids. Right. So that is sort of a medical circumstance instead of it being like just about fertility and, and boosting fertility. I wouldn't be surprised if we have, you know, now that England has sort of endorsed it in this very very, like, above board. There were all kinds of ethical reviews that have been happening for the last few years in, in England. I think this will pave the way for a sort of more regulated process elsewhere, too. My big worry is song lyrics, you know, like when doves cry. Maybe I'm just like my mother. Maybe I'm just like my father. Maybe I'm just like my mitochondrial mother. We'll have to redo everything. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know how... Uh how common this will be if it's really necessary to to rewrite song lyrics just yet. I hope so. I mean, those Stevie, Stevie Wonder, I Was Made to Love Her, you know that yeah. song? My papa disapproved it, my mother boo-hoo-hooed it. Like, if you have another mother that you have to mention, it, it just ruins the meter. Anyway, these are the important issues. Thank you, Virginia Hughes, science editor for BuzzFeed News. Thank you, Virginia. Thanks, Mike. So yesterday on the show, I talked about black ice and I characterized it as, you know, another scare tactic by people to describe weather phenomena that's been around forever to describe that anew. Now, some people emailed me and say, no, black ice is a specific thing. And when the headlights hit the black ice, it really looks like black ice. And it has nothing to do with Black Mirror, which I also found out was not a BBC show and also not a Netflix show. I knew all that. I just think black ice is bull. But I do think it gets in the way when you're trying to go anywhere or do anything 
like going to the post office. Quick story. I rode my bike in the ice for the first time yesterday. I said, well, I've ridden cars in the ice. You just go over the ice. No, you don't do that in a bike. Anyway, I got screwed up. Didn't have a envelope in my pocket. Oh, but if I did, if I did, I might've said to myself, why not use stamps.com? Because everything you could do at the post office, you could do from your home at your own computer with stamps.com. Like using your computer and printer to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Like not slipping on ice on a bike. Like handing this package to a mailman who, if he wants to take a bike, he can. If you want to drop it in the mailbox, you can. You don't have to worry about it. You just have to know that the gist is offering a special stamps.com offer. It's a no-risk trial. It's a $110 bonus offer. It includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. So go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click at the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com and enter the gist. When soulful, all right, let's say fairly soulful for an Englishman. When soulful Sam Smith's Stay With Me was number two on the charts, my guest Chris Malamphy was anticipating that he would write about this song because he writes about every song that reaches number one for Slate Magazine. And I bet he was wondering, hmm, am I writing about Sam Smith or am I writing about Tom Petty? So let's compare these songs. We're going to get help from a guy on YouTube called... Evan Ligfient. Anyway, he did a lot of pitch shifting, and uh, you'll hear him talk. So let's start with the Sam Smith song. Oh, won't you stay with me? Cause you're me. And then you speed it up a bit and pitch it up a bit. Oh, won't you stay with me? And then you take the uh, Tom Petty 1989 song, I Won't Back Down. And you pitch it down a bit. Well, I won't back down. No, In the news recently, Sam Smith agreed to pay Tom Petty some money because of the similarity you just heard there. Chris Malamphy, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you, Mike? So we've heard the two songs and, you know, those three notes, Stay With Me and Won't Back Down. It's actually even more than three notes. Like, honestly, you can sing about five or six notes. You can sing five or six notes, but it's the fact that it's the title, right? Right. It's the title of both of those songs are... Am I right? Literally note for note the same? They're pretty much note for yeah. note the same. I mean, try singing it for yourself. I, I, I well, I won't torture the audience. I won't torture that. the audience either. But honestly, yeah. if you sing, won't you stay with me and I won't back down, the melody is pretty much the same, which is kind of the smoking gun in this case. The, you know, when you talk about what is litigable when it comes to song copyright, melody is, is the smoking gun. And how many notes? Have the court said, here's the number of notes in a row? I've been doing some research about this with my, you know, music nerd friends, and I've heard from at least one source that the dividing line may be five notes. Mm-hmm. That once you get past five consecutive notes, and it's got to be a phrase that's sort of signature, like if it's buried in the verse or something, you're not necessarily going to hold, get hauled into court. But if it's five notes and stay with me slash I won't back down definitely qualifies for that. And if it's what's called the so-called top melody, 
right? It's it's that's you, the part you hum. That's the part you hum. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, if it's the part you hum. Yep. Was the backstory on this the people people like you people kind of knew that this suit was winding its way through the court, or did it come as a surprise? It came as a surprise to most people, not because nobody had heard it. Uh, there were people saying so last summer. I definitely heard some of this buzz. The thing is. You hear buzz about this sounds like this and that sounds like that so often that, frankly, sometimes you kind of shrug and say, well, you know, there are only so many chords in rock and roll and there are only, you know, so many ways to combine these melodies. You know, is this really going to turn into anything? And it should be noted for context for folks listening that the reason we now know about this, this was actually settled something like two or three months ago, but it came out when... Petty and Jeff Lynn, his other co-writer on I Won't Back Down, Jeff Lynn of the Electric Light Orchestra, he produced Full Moon Fever for Tom a, Petty. There was a Woolberry. There were Woolberries together. He, exactly. <laughs> they were added to the songwriting. If you now look up the publishing credits for Stay With Me by Sam Smith, the names Petty and Lynn are now added to the songwriting credits. And that got out, and that led Petty to have to make a small statement about, yeah, you know, I, nothing against Sam Smith, but... Uh, you know, we tried to make this as agreeable as possible. I'm paraphrasing. But. How much money could Petty have gotten? Like all of Sam Smith's profits from the song? No, probably not all because he's he's sharing the publishing. Publishing in, you know, these this new age of music that we're in now where uh, records are not being sold in the quantities they were a decade or two decades ago. Publishing is quite lucrative. And, you know, if Stay With Me winds up in a television commercial, if it winds up being used in a movie... There are publishing royalties that go along with that, and that will prove to be quite lucrative for Petty and Lynn. It could be hundreds of thousands. It could be millions of dollars. It's a big, big hit song. But I doubt that it would be the whole thing. There are rare instances where a clever and very litigious you know, manager like, infamously, Alan Klein, the manager of the Rolling Stones, managed to get 100% of the royalties for uh, the song Bittersweet Symphony, Symphony by The Verve, because The Verve song used a an orchestral sample, not even the original recording, of a, an old Rolling Stones song called The Last Time. And because Alan Klein is a clever son of a gun, he managed to get all of the royalties for that. But that's pretty rare. To my mind, that is unethical to steal someone's actual recording, whereas this can be explained that Tom Petty tried to explain that he bears no ill will towards Sam right. Smith and I think Sam Smith has even said things like, I have a lot of influences and I'm not going to argue that this was definitely in my head and it's a tribute to Tom Petty. Right. Yep. Actually quite typical about this case is that it is subconscious or unconscious. Uh, Smith claims it was unconscious. Smith, I've even seen in one place, claimed he, he wasn't even sure he'd ever heard the song. And it's entirely ever been to a United States political right. rally. That <laughs> This song is the number one thing used by the a guy. political rally, a stadium. I mean, yeah. my gosh, it's everywhere. He's probably absorbed it by osmosis and he doesn't even realize it. Right. How high did I Won't Back Down chart? Uh, I Won't Back Down just missed the top 10 back in 1989. It peaked at number 12. What are the top Billboard songs that have been one way or another involved in copyright slash plagiarism? I mean, the most arguably famous slash infamous case in, in copyright history involves two number one hits. He's So Fine, a 1963 number one by the Chiffons, uh, Motown era, not exactly a Motown group, and My Sweet Lord, the first solo number one hit by former Beatle George Harrison Another in example where the top line, literally the names of the songs, the notes associated with those words. Everything. From the verse yeah. to the chorus. I mean, it's a great case. I, I bring it up every time I get into a debate with people over whether this song or that song is a ripoff. Because 
stylistically, they couldn't be more different, right? You've got a 1963 Motown-esque R&B song versus a groovy early 70s Beatlesque, you know, uh, kind of Eastern mysticism. Eastern, Eastern mysticism mm-hmm. song with rock elements, right? So you have to not judge by the style, but my gosh, you can sing one song over the other, note for note. I mean, and it, in the final analysis, when uh, Harrison was brought before a judge. The judge's ruling was, look, I believe you that this was subconscious and you didn't mean to, um, but it nonetheless remains that you basically have copied the song for note for note. And that, I don't know if that was precedent, but in many cases over the, the, the decades of pop and rock, that has been a, a standard where people will quietly be added to, you know, the... the, the um, publishing of a song, even if the, the, the copying was unconscious, if, if you can name that many notes in a row and they're that close to each other. Okay. But on the other hand, maybe you could argue that if it was all out in the open, right, mm-hmm. as, as uh, sunshine's a good disinfectant, maybe some would say, this goes on so much, what you were saying, there's only a f- so many chords in rock music. Like, we have to step back and understand that a lot of this is going to be going on and people should not necessarily be paid every time we hear three notes in a row. Not everybody should be paid every time we hear three notes in a row. And I would also argue that not everybody should be paid when an obvious stylistic homage or a stylistic allusion has been made. And that brings us to Blurred Lines and Marvin Gaye. Exactly, which is the other hot, hot, hot case that has been making headlines for now several months, over a year, in fact. Blurred Lines was a hit two summers ago and as big as a number one hit gets. It was the song of the summer of that year. And uh, the Marvin Gaye estate is not backing down, if I may borrow Mr. Petty's line, they are willing to go all the way to court because they are convinced that they have a case. This case, frankly, ticks me off because I know both uh, Got to Give It Up, the Marvin Gaye song that they are uh, discussing, another number one hit from 1977, and Blurred Lines very well. And while they are absolutely a stylistic parallel to each other, there's very little direct melodic similarity. You cannot sing Got to Give It Up to the melody of Blurred Lines or vice versa. This is not a he's there's so the fine. Par- there's a partying thing going on. There's right. the noise in the background. There, stylistically, the theme of it. I also think what's going on there is that is this question of authenticity and people think Robin Thicke isn't authentic. And of course, Marvin Gaye is the embodiment of, you know, soul and cool. Exactly, which is why I, I often bring up the George Harrison case because there you have not a an infinitesimally small, but a fairly minor Motown-era act versus one of the most beloved people on the planet, George Harrison, a former Beatle. And I'm as big a Beatles fan as it comes, but I would agree that George Harrison deserved to make that payday to the Chiffons because he stole an entire, you know, melody from them, whether he did it unconsciously or not. I would say it would be a terrible precedent if uh, the Marvin Gaye estate were to win, because if stylistic homage, stylistic pastiche becomes uh, litigable, uh, (laughs) if I were the Pixies, I would haul into court Nirvana and every other alternative rock band of the 90s. Every slow, fast group ever. Exactly. I I mean... Black Sabbath. Every heavy right. metal band does. Where Black does that Sabbath. end? You know yeah. that that worries me more as a precedent than the you know six notes of similarity between "I Won't Back Down" and "Stay with Me." Chris Malamphy is a chart analyst and music writer. He also for Slate writes the "Why Is This Song Number One" series. Thank you. Pleasure, Mike. Do you want to build a website? Do you want to build a website? That is the song we've been singing in the offices. I've been talking to Andrea. Because I said, you know, I never really built a website. And Andrew's like, oh, I built like 40 of them. Andrew, what kind did you build? Oh, hey, Mike. Um, I My first website ever was in eighth grade, and it was devoted to canned soup. Yeah? Was it easy to build? 
had little gifts in it, like dancing soup cans, and it was great. I learned how to bold and italicize, um, but it was not easy. Every single thing that that website did, I had to tell it to do. So I'm going to say that Squarespace 7 features some uh, tools beyond the very important bold and italicizing tools. In fact, they have Google Apps and Getty Images. Imagine the soup images available on Squarespace 7. This partnership with Getty Images is just among the things they bring to their new iteration of ease and powerful website design. Squarespace also offers 24-7 support via live chat and email. And for $8 a month, you get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year. Also, every website comes with a free online store. Say the name of your store could have been Soupsville, Soupson, a Soupson, right? With a little curvy line that's called under the Soupson. All right. So start a trial with no credit card required and start building your soup or non-soup related website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code soup. No, just use the offer code just to get 10% off your first purchase. Seriously, the offer code is not soup. The offer code is just Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. And now the spiel, lower, upper, middle, lower, upper class warfare. Maybe I should call this segment, Mike Won't Let It Go, because I have still been debating about a segment we did about a week ago. I debated Adam Davidson about 529s. Now, if you remember, 529s, which are college savings plans, which are mostly used by the upper middle class to upper class and have as an element some uh, tax breaks. I was debating with Adam if they were good for society. They're, they're on the chopping block for a couple days until people rose up and said, I want my 529s. President Obama backed off his plan to eliminate them. So still on Facebook.com slash SlateGist, still getting into it with many people who are impassioned about this. And there are a couple things that I just wanted to go back and reemphasize and talk about. So if you remember that discussion, I cited the fact that the median income of those investing in 529s was $147,000. And I said, you know what that is? That's the salary of a New York City cop and a nurse at Mount Sinai Hospital, right? I could have said that's the salary of an unscrupulous car salesman, but I understand how rhetoric works. I made it the salary of the nurse and the cop, $147,000. I could have said, oh, that's like about how much an unscrupulous car salesman makes, but I understand how rhetoric works. I also understand rhetoric when it's from the pen of Raihan Salam, who was writing in Slate, and uh, he wrote, upper middle class income voters only oppose tax hikes on themselves. They're generally fine with raising taxes on people richer than themselves. This was an article about the upper middle class as a class, and I think he's right, but I think he's too narrow. I think everyone opposes raising taxes on themselves and favors raising taxes on people richer than themselves. And I also think it bleeds into those stories that we might hear about a labor situation. So they'll say, you know, toll takers make an average of 47000 a year. And the way we react to that story, there are two reactions. One is, oh, that's not very much. And the other is, 47000 That's more than I make. Well, anyway, let's look at 147000 the median income of those investing in 529s. I think if we're within spitting distance of whatever the figure is, we could sympathize. But if we're even 10, let's say 12% below that figure, we just say, oh, that's rich. That's richer than I am. Maybe there are exceptions. Maybe if we're in school now and we know that someday we will be rich. Maybe if we're 
you know, in our early 20s. And we know this is the period where I don't expect to have income, but one day I will. So there are exceptions. But for adults, if we have families, we hear a family of four's income is $147,000. Our reaction will usually be if we're at that level, nearly at that level or above, not that much. But if we're below that level by more than, say, 12%, we'll say, what problems do those people have? So I wanted to break that down. All right, here we go. $147,000. Once you pay taxes, you have $100,000. Now let's talk about housing expenses. That's going to be your biggest expense. Middle class. I'm not even going to do the thing where a two-bedroom, which isn't a great big apartment, a two-bedroom apartment in Manhattan. Not even going to talk about living in Manhattan, where I live, where the average two-bedroom apartment rents for over $4,000. Not going to do that. Not even going to talk about Brooklyn, where the people from Manhattan, they can't afford, they move to Brooklyn. Guess what? The average two-bedroom apartment is $3,300. I will talk about Queens. The average two-bedroom apartment in Queens, like real middle class, Archie Bunkers from Queens, $2,500. Or if you have a $400,000 mortgage on your house, middle class in most places, suburbs of big cities, that's $2,800 a month. So you do the math. We had $100,000 that we're keeping after taxes. Once you factor in your housing expenses, it's about $70,000 in your pocket. Andrea, are you keeping a tally on this? $70,000. Thank you. Now let's talk about transportation expenses. This is the H&T Affordability Index, True Affordability and Location Efficiency. They take different cities and they say what the average annual transportation cost is. It looks like they have about 40 metropolitan areas from the cheapest, New York, because everyone takes a subway, to Los Angeles, Chicago. Guess what? The most expensive area in average transportation cost is Birmingham, Alabama at $14,900 for a family of four. So I just took a middle income, actually a little bit below average in terms of metropolitan statistical area. Let's take Providence, New Bedford, Fall River, or Baltimore or Las Vegas, or Seattle, they're all around a little over $13,000. So once you take the $13,000 away from the, remember, Andrew, we had $70,000. Do the math for me. What do we have left? $57,000. All right, food. Food is weird. The official statistics about how much food costs just seems really low to me, but I checked a few of these sites, and they're in general agreement. This is the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They have the official USDA food plans, and they have it for how many different children and the age of the children. So I selected a family of four. That's what we're talking about. Two children. One is seven. The other is 10, right? They go between six and eight, nine, 11. And they have four different ways that you could buy your food. Thrifty, low cost, moderate cost, liberal. Let's go with the moderate cost plan for a family of four. Monthly expenses, $1,073. So extrapolated over the year and subtracted from our past total. Once you factor in how much we're spending on food a year, how much money do we have left to spend, Andrea? We're down to $44,000. $44,000. Now, let me quote from the Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation. Section one, cost of health insurance. The average annual premium in 2014 for family coverage, $16,834. There we go. Factor it in. After the cost of health insurance, how much money do we have to spend, Andrea? So now you're left with $27,000. 
So what about everything else in the household? Well, the IRS has this national standards, food, clothing, and other items. Now, we got food separately. This is sort of the maximum that if you're going bankrupt or whatever that you could declare. And they add that stuff up for a family of four to be around seven, $800. So you do that extrapolation, and now we are at $17,000 a year about. All right, let's talk about clothing. Couldn't get a great figure on this. Did it a couple ways. In 2010, North Dakota State University said that the average American household spends 3.8% of their income on clothing. So rounded up to 4, 4% at $147,000 means you are spending $5,880 on clothing. I confirm this with the average annual consumer expenditure. I also looked up another source, a governmental source, that said the average annual consumer expenditure for apparel and services was in 2011, 1740, in 2012, 1736, then it cratered to 1604. But anyway, I said it was around 1,700 a person. So for a family of four, a little less than $7,000. What are we at now? How much money do we have to spend now? $10,000. $10,000. Did I talk about cable? No. Okay, not even going to talk about cable. I'm just going to give you Wi-Fi. You're not going to get cable. I'm a cord cutter. You could be too. What about saving money for college? I'm not even talking about the pernicious stealing money out of the inner city kids' lunchbox 529. Just a regular college saving plan. Let's call that another $1,000. What about a phone? How much your phone cost a month, Andrea? Uh, my mom pays okay, for it. Okay, how much does she pay? My- I think like 150 for me and my brother and her. Okay, what? Yeah. R- what? Three people? Uh, I- T-Mobile, I don't know. I got to get on your plan. Anyway, we're definitely costing $1,000 for person for cell phones. Christmas, I don't know. I'm spending 1000 bucks. School supplies after school, that's at least a few hundred bucks. Vacation, 1000 bucks. I know you're saying, you're taking your family a foreign vacation for 1000 bucks. Let's say you do it. And what about summer? I'm not even saying an expensive camp. You got to spend at least like 150 a week per kid in summer, right? 30 bucks a day. Anyway, you add this all up. I get down to like 2,000 bucks. Wait, I belong to a gym that's 80 bucks a month. Run outside, Mike. Fine, fine, fine. But what I'm saying is this, 147,000 to spend. Once you take away all the necessary expenses, I didn't even let you have cable. I'm making you run outside instead of join a gym. And you're only spending $9 a day on food. You do two expensive dinners and you maybe take a vacation that costs more than $1,000. You have no money to spend. You have no extra money to spend. And you're saying that family family doesn't need help from college, half of the families that have a 529 are making $147,000 or under. Give them a break. They are not living high on the hog. Hogs, care and maintenance, $500. No, I'm not saying that. If you don't see that these families, even families with incomes maybe higher than yours, need help, then you've either lost the capacity for sympathy or More tragically, you've long ago tuned out to a podcast where I did a lot of subtraction. Either way, that's my 14.7 million cents. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi spends $300 monthly on miscellany and an additional $42 on gigaws. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, says, you know what's free? The air we breathe, the water we drink. The trees he urinates, defecates, scratch, rubs, and bites. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is rich, but maybe not in the ways you think. Not in fancy cars or diamond rings. Oh, no. He's rich in a much more profound way. 
no-load mutual funds and Roth IRAs. You can go to iTunes and subscribe, and when you do, leave us a review. You can get our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. You can subscribe to podcast via the app Yo. We'll send you our podcast every day. We're on Facebook. You know we're on Facebook. That whole spiel was about a Facebook conversation. Facebook.com slash slate gist. Remember, you can plan, you can budget, you can allocate all you want. But when it comes to the heart, well, love just has a way of kind of sneaking in there. Turning the red ink into black and posting a profit no matter what. Oh, wait a minute. No, actually, that's an SEC filing from Standard & Poor's in 2011. Was anyone watching these people? Thanks for listening. This is Josh Levine, host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. On this week's episode, we discuss the Super Bowl from many different angles. And we have NBC's coordinating producer, Fred Gadelli. He was there. He ran the show. He tells us what it was like from the truck. You can subscribe to Hang Up and Listen at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts.